right? All right. Looks like a Super Bowl title, doesn't it? What is it? Anybody know? Roman numeral 12. You guys are good. Um, I remember we had a whole unit on Roman numerals, and we had to add them and subtract them, and never used them since then. Um, So I figured I'd use it today. But 12 is the age of Jesus in our passage today. So um, we're, we're finished with the birth narrative, Christmas, Jesus is born. We even in Luke's gospel see Jesus taken to the temple where uh, he's blessed by Simeon and Anna. But now we look at the one passage in Holy Scripture that talks about Jesus between his birth and his public ministry. Um, This is the only inspired glimpse that we have of Jesus as a boy. Um, Matthew's gospel has his birth, but the next thing is John the Baptist uh, baptizing him. John's gospel actually starts with Jesus in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's eternity past. But then the next thing is John the Baptist. In um, Mark's gospel, it starts with John the Baptist baptizing him. But here in Luke, we have the, the birth narrative, and now we see him as a teenager. All right? And how would you like to have Jesus as your brother growing up? Why don't you act more like your brother Jesus? All right. All right, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So actually the Old Testament said every male was supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Um, uh, so So for them to go from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about a 90-mile walk, Um, but they apparently went up every year to uh, Jerusalem. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. The parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So, you know, picture this. You've got all these brothers and sisters and cousins and people from your little town of Nazareth. I'm sure the teens all hung out together and the kids hung out and there were groups. And uh, so they went up. And by the way, when they go up to Jerusalem, if you look at a map, they're actually going south. Up doesn't mean north-south. It means up on the mountain. So they go up to Jerusalem, and they're hanging with, with the different groups. Okay? Then it's time to leave, and Mary and Joseph are probably with the adults and uh, different groups of kids, and they realize, where's Jesus? And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All right, so keep that in mind, listening to them and asking them questions. All right. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. All right. So, um, this passage, in, at least in my mind, raises all kinds of questions about Jesus and how can he be learning in the temple and how could he grow in wisdom if he's in the omniscient God? And what's going on here with his parents? It's just a, a fascinating passage uh, that, that should cause us to, to ponder, who is this God who became man? And what does it mean that he's man and God in one person? So here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have us look at three things. First of all, the precision of Luke's account. Secondly, we're going to look at the person of Jesus. And thirdly, we're going to look at the parents of Jesus, the interaction between him and his parents. But first of all, um, just simply the precision of Luke's account. Now, this is the only inspired account that we have of Jesus' growing up years. Now, there are other writings, other, in quotation marks, Gospels that write about Jesus' childhood. They're not inspired. Um, in fact, uh, they're Gnostic Gospels or they're second century Gospels that people wrote and they attached like the names of the apostles to them. Um, for example, here is an excerpt from the Gospel of Thomas, a second century document. When this boy, Jesus, was five years old. He was playing at the ford of a brook, and he gathered together into pools the water that flowed by and made it at once clean and commanded it by his word alone. So little creek is going by, and he says, Water, form into little pools and be clean. So he's doing his magic, his mystical uh, uh, miracle power. So he's five. Right? But the son of Annas, the scribe, so assuming it's another little kid, was standing there with Joseph, and he took a branch of a willow tree and with it dispersed the water. He mixed all the water up, um, which Jesus had gathered together. When Jesus saw it, he was enraged and said, you insolent, godless dunderhead. What harm did the pools and the water do to you? See now, you also shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately the lad withered up. Gospel of Thomas. Okay. Gospel of Thomas also says this. After this, again, he went through the village and a lad ran and knocked against his shoulder. Jesus was exasperated and said to him, you shall not go further on your way. And the child immediately fell down and died. 
Jesus is a toddler. Here's one from an Arabic gospel. So Jesus is in Nazareth, and there's a town dyer uh, who dyes clothes different colors. And the, the boy Jesus takes all the clothes in this dyer's shop and puts them in a cauldron of purple. So the owner says, What have you done to me, son of Mary? You have ruined my reputation in the eyes of all people of the city. For everyone orders a suitable color for himself, but you have come and spoiled everything. The whole town's going to be purple now. I added that. And the Lord Jesus replied, I will change for you the color of any cloth which you wish to be changed. And he immediately began to take the clothes out of the cauldron. Each of them died as the dyer wished until he had taken them all out. So the magical dyeing trick. What, you, you want yellow? Yellow. You want red? Red. Right? Now, um, usually around Christmas and Easter, certain TV stations run programs claiming to be objective, and they're claiming to get the real story of who the real Jesus was, and they, they dig out these Gospels, these Gnostic Gospels, and they're presented as the hidden Gospels or the suppressed Gospels that the early church tried to do away with, but we have found them. And now we can know the true Jesus, or really their, their agenda is to say, see, aren't these ridiculous stories and the inspired Gospels are just as ridiculous? Okay, They're trying to uh, make the story of Jesus into a myth. Okay? Um, but the idea is there was this, this conspiracy in the early church to hide these early documents. Well, there was no conspiracy. It's simply that the early church saw what you just saw. They're ridiculous. They're comical. It's, in fact, it's the kind of thing that a, a comic book writer would write about a teenage superhero who's just discovering his superpowers. Oh, sorry. Have to kill a few toddlers, but I'm, you know, learning about and refining my superpowers. All right. um, Luke's account, did you notice there were no miracles involved when he was a teen? It's rather normal compared to these fictional accounts. Right? No miracles, no zapping of toddlers. And I'm going to say this. The normalcy of this account of Jesus when he's 12 actually argues for the genuineness or the accuracy or the precision, the truthfulness of the account. If, if Luke were just making stuff up, he could write about miracles. He could make it more spectacular. Why not zap a few toddlers? Right? But the fact that he doesn't argues for, remember his opening line, where he, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So you go, where, where would Luke have gotten this story about 12-year-old Jesus? How about Mary? She was alive. He probably talked to her 
I, he's, he's claiming that, that what he's writing about is based on eyewitness accounts. So it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty. So he begins his gospel saying, hey, this isn't mythological stuff. This is historical. Now, the very next chapter, chapter 3, we're going to read about John the Baptist. And uh, now, if you're writing a myth, the last thing you want to do is um, pin yourself down by, by naming dates and locations and people how does, how does Luke introduce John the Baptist with this? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, so we know, who, we know who the president is, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Triconus, Tri, Triconotus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Boy, if he's trying to slip mythological stuff in, why does he get so precise with the years and the, uh, the rulers and, and when this happened? Because he's writing a historical account. Now, that's not to say he doesn't have a theological agenda, but he sure is presenting this as absolute truth, okay? So, point number one, I just want us to kind of step back and, and be reminded that, yes, these are inspired historical accounts, not myth. And this story of Jesus as a 12-year-old, it's not spectacular, but it does make a point about who he is. And that takes us to the second issue, the person of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Now, in the first 500 years of Christendom, the early church was intensely focused on that question. Who is this person? In fact, the first four ecumenical councils, when all the representatives from from, uh, all over the Roman world, actually the the known world, gathered to debate certain theological issues. Now, here's a question for you. In this, this account, it says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, Here's my question about his questions. Were his questions to the teachers real? In other words, did he actually learn by asking questions and hearing an answer? Or was this just a way for him to get an opportunity to speak his divine truth, his his divine omniscience? In fact, here's a question. Is 12-year-old Jesus omniscient? Does he know everything? Now, before you give the quick answer, well, he's God, of course he knows everything. Look at how Luke ends this passage. And Jesus increased in wisdom 
and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew physically and he grew in wisdom. How does an omniscient person grow in wisdom? Now, to complicate things even further, Jesus talked about his return, and he said this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, what that is telling you is that God the Father knows a piece of information, the day of Christ's return, but Jesus doesn't know that piece of information. Okay. Now, Peter said this to Jesus, John 21, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. Now, if this were a college class or a seminary class, here's what I'd do. I'd say break into groups and reconcile these two verses. You know everything. I don't know when I'm returning. Reconcile his omniscience as God with his I don't know when I'm returning as, as a human. Okay. Let me, uh, let me, can I give you a, like a, a, this is what you'd call historical theology. I'll give you an entire seminary class on historical theology in about Three or four minutes. You want that? Okay, here we go. The first ecumenical council, from the first 300 years the church was being persecuted and Rome was the persecutor and they you know, were on the run. And then Constantine um, becomes the Roman ruler and he gets converted to Christianity. And he says, all right, we're all Christian now. All right, kind of maybe a little simplistic, but... Um, now it's safe to be a Christian, so the different leaders in different areas have time to actually think about theology. And a question arose, is this Jesus God? Now, um, that issue arose because there was a guy named Arius who taught that Jesus was not of the same substance with God the Father. I don't know if that's homoousius or oiseus. Um, but Arius said Jesus, he, he was created, but he's not divine. And Augustine said, no, he's not created. Who was it? Oh, excuse me, Athanasius. Athanasius, contramundum, right, said, no, Jesus is God. So, um, at the, in fact, there's a, this is interesting, you can Google this, Ancient Christological Heresies Chart. And I, th- I think it would be funny if our, uh, our college kids went to, to school, and you know, when you go to college, you put your sports hero and a poster on the wall, or your rock band. I think it'd be funny if the Valleybrook kids put up an Ancient Christological Heresies poster on their wall. Uh, Caleb, he's got an Augustine poster on his wall. It's in your apartment now, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's interesting is here it's illustrated all the different heresies. So let's zero, zero in on Arianism. Arianism says Christ was 
a created being not of equal divinity with God the Father. So that was the debate. Is Jesus God? And at the first council, they argued with the scriptures and they concluded um, that he is God. Jesus is God. Okay. So then, about 50 years later, we've got the first council of Constantinople. Apollinarianism was the issue there. Apollinarianism said that, that Jesus didn't have a human mind or soul. The soul and the mind were divine, but the rest of him was human. So this would be a picture of Apollinarianism. Christ had a human body and human emotions, but he had the nuance of God, the mind of God. The, the problem with this is it, it gives, it says, yes, he was part, part God and part human. But the term there is that's a tertium quid. It's a third thing. He's, if you're part God and part human, you're not fully God and fully human. You're a third thing. So Apollinarianism was condemned at the Council of Constantinople. Then there's the first Council of Ephesus in 431. And there the issue was... Nestorianism. Nestorius said that um, when you look at this Jesus, he's two separate people, persons, in one. So this picture would be Christ was two persons combined, not one person with two natures. So God person and human person overlaid, but he's two persons. And that was condemned. And then finally, the Council of Chalcedon, 451, the issue was monophysitism. And that's painful if you get that. Um, monophysitism said Christ was not fully human. So if, if Arianism says he's not fully God, now we've gone full spectrum. He's God, but he's not fully human, so... Uh, the picture would be here. The white would be God. Christ had only one nature divine, which subsumed the human nature. So um, his humanity wasn't full. It was swallowed up in his divinity. So now, now get this. Um, the Council of Chalcedon, and you can, it's a big, long paragraph, but here, here's the key thing I want you to see. They concluded that he consists of two natures, okay, divine and human, but those two natures, when they're combined, they were inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably combined. Now, that'll give you a headache when you really think about this, because if they're inconfused, but they're indivisible. They can't be separated. So, oh, they must be mixed. No, they're not mixed. In fact, I brought along, this is not a magic trick. People go, oh, he's walking in with a prop. Well, this is what I'm going to call an anti-illustration because it doesn't really, it illustrates what not to think. Uh, here, at least, we have one person, one bottle, and we've got water, and oil, which represents the two natures of Christ. Um, this is not a good illustration because these are separated. You say, oh, well, if you shake it up, that's a good picture of Jesus. No, because now 
the natures are confused. All right? So this is an anti-illustration. It doesn't, it's not good. But it's good to know what's not good. It's good to know how not to think about Jesus. Don't think about him that way. Or we can wait the other way. All right? You say, well, how do, how do, how do, how do we do this? Well, I, I, some of you who know me as a teacher, you know that sometimes the best thing we can do is draw a box and say, here's the parameters. Here's what we have to believe. And then how it all works, different people have worked it out differently in the middle, but, but just don't go outside the box. So here we have Jesus, the person who's fully God, and he's fully human. You can't, <clears throat> you can't deny those. And those two natures are combined in one person, they're, but they're inseparable. You can't divide them out. And they're inconfusedly joined. Now, I don't know how you reconcile those two, but there are the parameters. You can bang around in the box and, and try and think about it, but that is the person of Jesus. Now, some people go, this, what practical, how does this practically help me? Well, here's how it helps you. We're talking about Jesus. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know your God. The first 500 years, there were people, I don't know, were they burned at the stake or were they, they were exiled for having heretical views of Jesus, right? What's that? The guy got his hand chopped off. Who was that, Nestorius? I know. <laughs> All right. Now, you go, still, Pastor, you haven't answered the question, how can Jesus not know of his return, the day of his return, yet be God at the same time? Now, as I've studied this, um, actually there's a quote by John Calvin that probably does the best at not, not solving the issue, but defining the issue. Right? He says this, For we know that in Christ the two natures were united into one person in such a manner that each retained its own properties, and more especially the divine nature was in a state of repose, rest and did not at all exert itself whenever it was necessary that the human nature should act separately. So what he does here is he says one person, two natures in the one person, but the divine attributes, he didn't rid himself of those divine attributes, but they were at rest. So there are times when you could ask Jesus a question, what's the day of your return and he, the person, would say, I don't have that information. Because the divine attribute of omniscience didn't disappear, but it was at rest, and he was just speaking through his human faculties. Now, I know that raises all kinds of other questions. Talk to Caleb, okay? Um, now, Practical implications. What, what does this matter? One, it's, like I said, it's just you need to know who you're worshiping. 
Okay, just knowing this uh, is important. Second thing of why this is important, we need to understand that as a human, Jesus experienced everything you and I experience. He really learned. He was really tempted by Satan. Sometimes you get the impression, well, yeah, he he resisted Satan 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, but he was God. Like he had uh, supernatural, he cheated. No, he didn't cheat. Okay, He experienced real emotions, real fear, real agony on the cross, real betrayal. And that's what... uh, The Hebrews writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So isn't it good to know that Jesus, who you pray to about your fears and your temptations and your troubles, can really understand what you're going through because he went through the same thing. Okay. Third practical thing is this. Um, if Jesus grew in his knowledge of God and the Bible through interacting with others over Scripture, I mean, he went to the temple and he found the teachers, the learned teachers, and he sat down with them. And he asked questions, and he interacted, and this went on every year. And we know that he attended synagogue because he actually preaches there, and they go, oh, this is Jesus. We know Jesus. So what that tells you is he was involved in the learning communities that God had established, the synagogue and the temple. So the question is, If Jesus needed to learn through learning communities, who are we to think we don't need them? And uh, we're we're kind of in in an age today where we go, well, I'll go to church and I'll listen to this podcast and I'll read a book, but I I I don't need those small groups. They're irritating. Plus, so-and-so never returned my hot pot or my crock pot. And I don't like so-and-so's personality. So I've got my, my webcasts and my podcasts. And I think God has set it up that we are to learn in community. And, and I'm going to go even further. In the community of our local church, because you can be involved outside. There's nothing wrong with being out, uh, involved in outside ministries. But there's one thing that a small group provides in your local church that a, a, a study doesn't provide out there. Accountability. Right? So you go, how, where, how can I get involved in uh, a, a group? Well, in, in your bulletin, there's actually a little little black box or little gray box. But here's just some of the groups we have. Um, one's a prayer group, Sunday morning at 9.15. Hey, we had a, a good turnout this morning praying, 9.15. Then we have connection time at 11.30. What do we do at connection time? We process the sermon together. 
And sometimes things get brought up I never thought of or applications. It's a way to do the question and answer. Right? Then we have our, our regular small groups. Uh, in fact, Paulson's right here. Kevin, raise your hand. They, they meet on Sunday evenings every other Sunday. Sheehan's, Lily over here. They're in Elburn. They're in Batavia. They meet on Sunday evenings also, right? Smith's. Smith's, we're, we're meeting on uh, Saturdays at 5, which I know is nobody does anything on Saturday at 5, so um, we meet then. Okay, then there's, there's a Tuesday women's study and a Friday women's study. There's a, this has kind of been around but not public, a Tuesday afternoon men's group. Um, you need to know the secret handshake to get into that one, all right, but... Um, let, let me know if you're interested in that. But here's just some of the groups that are, are, are going on. Um, but I, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to go, shame on you for not being in a, in, a, in a small group. I want you to look at Jesus and go, he was excited to be part of a learning group. And he actually learned. Now you go, I don't need it. I've, I've learned all that stuff. How about you start one? And give us your knowledge, okay? Or participate in one, all right? So um, let, me, let me quickly move to a third observation. The parents of Jesus, okay? And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Now, you might get the impression that... Um, he sinned here against his parents by hanging out in the temple for three days. Well, we know from Hebrews that he's been tempted in every way, but he is without sin. So, however you look at this, Mary may have been upset, but he did not sin. Okay. Now, kids, that doesn't mean you can go to your friend's house for three days without texting your mother. But this was not sin. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Ooh. What's he saying? Joseph, great, great stepdad. He's not my father. God is my father. Now, you go, why didn't they understand? They didn't understand. Well, I, I mean, obviously, the angel appeared to Mary, and she knew that he is the Messiah. But that was 12 years ago. Do you always keep your theology straight? I think they just got caught up in life, and they lost sight of how... God had entrusted them with the Messiah. Here's a shocking reminder. Joseph isn't the dad. God is his father. You know, this isn't the only time Jesus kind of, let's, how, do, how do I put it? He didn't sin, but he said something shocking to make the point that he's the son of God. Uh, do you know that his brothers didn't believe in him? And in Mark 321, it says, and when his family heard it, he was doing miracles and teaching and crowds were gathering, 
They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. Then he's teaching, and his mother and brother show up to take him home because they're embarrassed. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, does he go, oh, oh yeah, honor your father and mother, um, and rushes out and goes home with them? No, look what he does. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. My disciples are my true family. Right? Now, he was a good son. He was a good brother. But he's making a point that his primary allegiance, his primary family, are believers. Right? Now, how do we apply this? Well, he calls us to have the same priorities when it comes to family that he has. He, he said this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I know that uh, there are difficult, if not agonizing, family situations where a person is a Christian in a family and the spouse is not on the same page spiritually. Or the kids are not on the same page spiritually. One's a believer and the others are either not believers or they're just kind of nominal and they're not really growing. One wants to grow, the others are kind of like, do we have to go to church again? And if you're in that situation... Man, that's, that's a difficult situation to be in. There's choices about what church to go to, how involved in a church should I be. And I am not saying that being in that situation is an easy one. But I think we have to conclude from what Jesus says this. When your desire for family peace compromises your own commitment to the Lord, Jesus would say, put me first. Don't compromise your relationship with me for the sake of family peace. Now, some people, I'm afraid, will mishear that, and that just gives them fuel to be a jerk. I am more spiritual than you. No, 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 no. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is, boy, I could grow more if I was involved in this church or this Bible study or this practice, 
but my family is, is preventing me from really doing that. Um, so I'll, I, I'll let them draw me back as opposed to me pushing forward. And I'm not saying it's an easy situation to be in. But don't let your love for your unbelieving or nominal family member be greater than your love for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at who you are. We marvel at this complex reality that you're fully God and fully man in one person. You know all things. Yet, you didn't know all things in certain cases. And Lord, we pray that um, when we reach that point of mystery, that we would throw up our hands, fall on our knees, and worship you. And Lord, uh, thank you for Luke's faithful, precise account. And thank you for your example saying I needed to be in my father's house. And I pray, Lord, you would give us new resolve to kindly and wisely navigate the complexity of family relationships without compromising us being sold out 100% to you. So we ask for your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen.